Good morning, my name is Dave. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, it is great to have you with us. Today we are actually in week three of uh, a series where we're exploring seven core distinctives of who we believe God is calling us to be and become as people who follow Jesus together here at Cedar Mill. And as we get into our message today, uh, I want to invite you to just grab your Bible. If you brought your Bible with, grab it, turn to Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be on page 802. We're actually going to be a few different places today, but we're going to start right here in Matthew chapter 21. And this is I guess I'd say one of the less popular and maybe even least understood stories about Jesus. It's not a, particular, a particularly popular Jesus story, especially in the state of Oregon, because in it, he actually kills a tree. So it's not really a, an Oregon-friendly sermon today, but, but you'll understand it in a bit, and it really will make sense. So turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to find that in this story... Uh, Jesus is calling us into being and becoming people that God longs for us to be. So here we go. Matthew chapter 21. Here's, here's what we read starting in verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Now, when you first read this story, perhaps you're thinking, man, Jesus is hangry in this story. I mean, when Jesus is grumpy, he's hungry, right? When Don't mess with him before he's eaten. And that's not necessarily the point. That's not what the story is all about. The story is actually about something that every human heart longs for and where we will not find it. What every human heart longs for and where we will not find it. And to really understand what Jesus is saying in the story, we have to understand that fig trees were the dessert trees of the ancient Near East. Imagine a world with no processed sugar, no grocery stores, and all you had was what was produced, what was grown. You see, figs were as close to dessert as the first century, century Hebrews understood. Now imagine your favorite dessert. Imagine that the only place you could get it was on a tree, like an ice cream tree, a donut tree. Think how much you'd love that tree. That's how the people of Jesus' day felt about the fig tree. So right away, as this, this whole scene plays out, Jesus' disciples know some things about this tree that we might not. First of all, as this story t takes place, they know this. It's not fig season. It's Passover week. It's spring. It's April. Fig trees don't produce figs in April, Jesus. What are you expecting? But here's another thing you need to know about fig trees. The fruit comes before the leaves. The fruit of a fig tree blossoms just before the leaves appear. So in other words, if a fig tree has leaves, it should also have fruit. And this explains why Matthew writes this story the way he does. If you look again at verse 19, it says, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. 
And here's what Matthew was telling us. This is a fig tree that is showing all the exterior signs of having fruit. But when Jesus gets up close, he discovers leaves only. And then Jesus, as he often did, uses this encounter to demonstrate something, to teach his disciples, to teach you and me something about life in his kingdom. He uses this encounter with this tree to demonstrate his utter and complete rejection of something he knows to be absolutely tragic and toxic to the human soul. And that's when we embrace external presentation without internal transformation. External presentation without internal transformation. In this moment, Jesus declares in the strongest possible terms, posing and pretending to be someone you're not, trying to impress and look good for others, the counterfeit way of spin and image management is not the rich, full, abundant, transforming life that Jesus has come to offer. It is not what he desires for you, for me, for any of his followers. He's saying patching up the exterior of your life, just showing your leaves, is not what God longs for you. And yet, if we're honest, it's still something that many of us in this room struggle with. If we go back to the beginning, if we go back to the beginning of our story, the beginning of the story of the human race, we go back to the book of Genesis and in this story, story, we discover how it is we got here, how we find ourselves in this situation. We find Adam and Eve, and they're in this garden, this garden called Eden. And Eden, friends, is really just a picture of what it means to be completely connected to God and to, to fully be the people he created us to be. In chapter 2, we're told, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Friends, this is not just a statement about the absence of clothes. This is a statement about the kinds of relationships that God created us for. Relationships where there was no posing or pretending. Relationships where it was safe to be completely vulnerable without any fear. But then in chapter 3... It all changes and sin enters the world and Adam and Eve mess up and there's shame and guilt and disappointment and blame and now instead of naked and unashamed, there's covering up. There's a loss of transparency. There's hiding from God and from one another. And friends, the human race has been hiding ever since. Ever since that moment, we've been tempted to front and pose and protect our image because if you really knew me, if you really knew what was happening in my mind and in my heart and in my life, then you might not love me. If you really knew the depths of my soul, then you might not accept me. If you really knew, you might reject me. There's a great story in the Old Testament about a guy named Moses. And I love this story because it's about Moses. And, and Moses is like the man. He is the hero. He is the one we look to in the Old Testament for guidance and for an example of how to walk with God, how to trust God, how to follow God, how to do great things for God. But in this story, Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. Now imagine this. 
All the other Israelites have stayed down the mountain. Moses has gone up by himself, and he has met face to face with God. And after this meeting, he comes back down, and something has changed. After standing face to face with Yahweh, Moses is radiant. His face is literally glowing. And Moses doesn't realize this because, of course, there are no mirrors. And so he doesn't discover that this is a reality until he gets back down the mountain and all the other Israelites tell him about it. And they're saying, wow, have you seen Moses? He's radiant. He's just glowing with the glory of God. And it's an amazing thing. It's a cool thing. But then what happens? The radiance starts to fade away. And so what does Moses do? Do you remember? He puts a veil over his face. He puts this veil over his face so that the people cannot see him any longer. And, and Paul, he talks about this story and he recounts it to the church, to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says this, he says, Moses put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. You see, scholars believe that what's going on here is that Moses is paranoid about the fading. He's paranoid that if people see his glowing face starting to fade, they'll be less impressed with him. He won't be so special anymore. They'll think he's not as close with God or as spiritually cool as he once was. And so what does he do? He puts up a veil. He covers himself. He hides, just like they did in the garden. And Paul goes on to say that this is not how God longs for us to live. Paul tells this story as a way of exhorting the early church to not live this way, to not do this. He says the same thing that Jesus does when he tells his disciples about the fig tree on that road. Paul says, tells the story to say, since we have the promise of God's love and acceptance through what Jesus has done for us, now, now we can live, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with what? Unveiled faces. Now we can live with no more veils, with no more hiding. We don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to pretend. Now, because of Jesus, we don't have to cover up. You see, the New Testament, friends, time and time and time again offers us this vision of being a community, a people where veils aren't needed, and we can allow people to see us even when the glory of God isn't shining so brightly in our lives. And it's not only that we're tempted to hide our sin. It's not just that we're tempted to conceal the dirty, nasty, ugly parts of us. We're also often tempted to present ourselves as better than we really are. We're often tempted to pose and pretend and to spin our image so that you'll think I am better than I actually am. Just this week, this is just the world we live in, friends, isn't it? Don't you see this everywhere? Just this week I read that on YouTube alone, there are over 13,000 tutorials on how to take a great selfie. 13,000 videos on how you can take a selfie in a way that will make you look better than you actually look in real life. 
head on home and watch a few thousand of them. But isn't that just the world we live in today? Fake it to make it. Image is everything. Perception is reality. And time and time again, Jesus warns us, this is not the life God wants for you. He also warns us that religious people are perhaps even more susceptible to this make-yourself-look-good pressure than anyone else. You see, sometimes we want to believe that as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as people in the church, we're different than the world, and yet Jesus says there's actually more pressure on you. In Matthew chapter 6, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, the sermon where he talks about what it looks like to live life in the kingdom, Jesus brings up three core practices for connecting with God. Three core ways that we can dial our lives and hearts into the heart of God through Christ. And his main focus in this sermon is how often we're tempted to twist even wonderfully spiritual things into something that might make us look good to others. He says, even in the midst of seeking God, seeking righteousness, trying to become the people that God wants you to become, there's going to be this temptation, this constant pressure to use even these spiritual things to impress others and to spin your image. He says it this way in Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Be careful, followers. Be careful, Church, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Watch your motives. Check your heart because your heart will drift. When I was a young pastor, uh, a guy that I really loved and looked up to in our church mentioned to me one day that he had gone up to the church office to see one of the other pastors on staff. And when he went to meet with him, he wasn't there. He wasn't in his office. But when he walked in, he saw on this particular pastor's desk a Bible just laying there open right in the middle of his desk. And he said to me, man, it is so great to be a part of a church where the pastors love the Word of God and they're consistently opening the Word of God, even during the week. And just to walk in and see this open Bible on Pastor Dupar's desk, it just reminded me of what a great spiritual man he is. And I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, that's impressive. And I, I, I'd kind of like to be that impressive as well. And so then a, a few days later, I'm packing up to leave my office and I was putting my things away and cleaning up my desk and there was my Bible but instead of putting it back on the shelf that day I thought you know I was reading my Bible today I really was and so maybe I should just leave it open right here on my desk for someone to maybe see and so I did I left it there open on my desk and I left thinking maybe someone would see it. Maybe someone would be spiritually impressed with me the way they were with Pastor Dupar. Friends, do you see how sick and twisted our hearts can get? I want to tell you that I'm older now. I'm much more mature and subtle and sophisticated and much less obvious in the ways that I try to impress you spiritually. And yet some of you still see right through it, I'm sure. 
I really want you guys to be verbal at the right moment, you know? <laughs> when I want an amen, I can't get an amen. And then all of a sudden, here we are. Um, last weekend, it's true though, because last weekend, um, some of you know that I went back for this reunion with some of these guys that I played college basketball with. And 18 years it had been since I'd seen some of those guys. And it was a really great reunion. But ironically, or providentially, or divinely, the very last sermon I preached before I went was a sermon on love extravagantly. Love extravagantly. And I found myself battling in my soul because as I went back to see all my old friends, what I really wanted to do was not love extravagantly. What I really wanted to do was impress significantly. <laughs> but I'll tell you what can never go together. Impressing significantly and loving extravagantly. They do not mix. Every single time you will choose one or the other. Amen. And I found myself... Wrestling and battling in my soul. Because the flesh is still alive in me. That urge, that desire to want to impress more than love still lives in me. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Be careful of external presentation without internal transformation. Be careful of living your life like the fig tree. Friends, Jesus' word for this is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Where the exterior matters more to us than the interior. Seventeen times the New Testament uses the word hypocrisy. And every single time, every single time, it is a red-letter word. Every single time that word is seen in the Bible, it comes right off the lips of Jesus. This is exclusively a Jesus word. It's the Greek word hypocrites, And in the first century, it wasn't necessarily a religious word. It was just a normal word. It was just a societal word. It was a word that simply described an actor who wore a mask so they could play a part and pretend to be someone or something that they were not. But then Jesus comes along and he says, this is actually the perfect word to describe how your hearts will want to lean. Jesus says, you'll be tempted to be Hypocrites, hypocrites, people who look like that fig tree. And when Jesus withers that tree that day, he's making a very clear statement. That is not what I long for you. That is not what I long for my people. That is not what I long for my church. For those who follow me, the hiding and pretending and mask wearing is over. Friends, Jesus saves some of his harshest words for this kind of behavior. Why? Because he understands how insidious it is, how addictively destructive it is to your heart and mine. When we hypocrites, when we present external without internal, the person it damages most is me and you. Jesus is vehement about this. At one point he says, Woe to you 
Imagine that from Jesus. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You see, Jesus rebukes this strategy of external presentation without internal transformation, mostly because he understands it doesn't work. It's a dead-end road. He's saying, this will not work. Hiding and pretending and veiling will not deal with the broken, messy, rotten stuff in your life. It will only leave it there to fester. And friends, believe me, you don't want that stuff festering in your heart and soul. When I was in college, there's a story that I relived this week. Uh, at one point in our little kind of apartment area, they had a few rooms and then a common area with a little kind of mini kitchen. And in our mini, mini kitchen, we had this microwave. And um, at one point, one of the roommates, no one's confessed to this yet, by the way, <laughs> 25 years later, and the perpetrator is still in hiding, not living into my sermon. Someone decided to cook a slice of pizza, leftover pizza, in the microwave. And when they put the pizza in the microwave and cooked it, when they went to take it out, the button that opened the door broke. And so the door would not come open. And so, of course, this roommate, unnamed roommate, did what any 18-year-old college male would do and just walked away. (laughs) And so the pizza remained encased in the microwave for many days and weeks and months until finally there emerged a great odor. And one day my roommate and I were saying something really smart, and we sniffed it out and finally dis- d- discovered this piece of pizza in this microwave. And so we got a screwdriver and we pried the door open. And when we opened the door, we discovered that that piece of pizza had come to life. <laughs> and so we did what any college male would do, we hid it in our roommate's dorm room. In the vent. We literally unscrewed the vent in the wall and stuck it. Oh, yeah, that's the kind of person I was before Christ, friends. Because that's what guys do when they love each other to express affection when they're 17. And that pizza just festered and stunk Friends, that's the picture of a life that simply covers up, that simply tries to sort of cover up the internal brokenness with external pretendness. To highlight this this very point, Jesus tells a story um, in Luke chapter 18 of two people. One, he says, is a tax collector, the enemy. Perhaps the most despised and hated person in the entire culture. And the other is a Pharisee, a religious person, someone looked up to and respected. And in this story, both men show up to the temple to pray on the same day. And one guy, the Pharisee, he's out to impress. He shows up with a mask on and he says this, God I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he's tired of hiding. 
He's tired of pretending. He doesn't even have a mask to wear anymore because he knows he can't fool anyone. And so it tells us he would not even look up to heaven. You ever discipline your kids? You ever talk to your kids about something they've done wrong when they, when they know they've done something wrong? When they're embarrassed, when they're ashamed, when they're remorseful and regretful? You ever have this moment where they just can't even look you in the eye? That's this guy. He can't even look his heavenly father in the eye. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus' point is, of course, that God loves this. He loves this man. He loves an authentic heart. He loves this guy's honesty. He loves his vulnerability. He loves his willingness to be transparent about who he really and truly is. There's a phrase for this. In our world, we call this keeping it real. In between services, Pastor Ashley told me that that's actually not the new phrase. The new phrase is keeping it 100 Keeping it 100. She's here to keep me hip with the youths. So, friends, Jesus loves to keep it 100. Jesus loves to keep it real. He came to keep it real. Maybe this is why when Jesus meets with people, he would almost always, very often, hone in and put a finger on precisely that part of their life that they most wanted to hide. You ever notice this about Jesus? Some of us think, man, it would be great to have a conversation with Jesus. No, it wouldn't. Because <laughs> he's going right after your stuff. He meets with Zacchaeus. Remember the little tax collector? And he says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus says, oh, great. And he says, by the way, we're going to be discussing your greed. With Thomas, he says, Let's talk about your doubt. With Peter, he says, let's address your denial, your betrayal, the greatest failure in your life. Let's talk about that, Peter. With that woman at the well, he says, let's get down to business. Let's talk about that place of humiliation and embarrassment and shame. Let's talk about the fact that you're on your fifth husband and the man you're living with now you're not even married to. Let's talk about that. You see, friends, we live in a world where sin wants us to continue to hide. But the call and the challenge and the invitation from Jesus is that his people, his church, his followers can be different. We can be honest. We can be authentic about who we really are and where we still fall short even after all these years of following Christ. Don't let the devil fool you into that trap. You've been walking too long to have any more problems. No way. Friends, this week's distinctive is that we will be and become people who relate authentically. Week one, love extravagantly. Week two, hope relentlessly. Week three, relate authentically. That we will be people who learn to lift the veil and take off the masks and come out of hiding. This week I had the chance to speak with our ambassador group and I talk with them about the church, how much I love the church. I love the church. I know the church isn't perfect. I know the church is messed up. I believe that God still has plans and purposes for his church in this world. In fact, I think it's his A number one strategy 
for how he's going to reach this world, how he's going to redeem and reconcile this world to himself through his bride. I love talking about the church, and specifically, I love talking about the early church. And one of the distinctives that marked the early church was this very unique quality. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. It tells us that when they gathered, they were sincere. It says they gathered with sincere Hearts. That means at the very core of who they were, they were sincere. And this word sincere, it's a very interesting and powerful word. It's actually made up of two Latin words. Sin, which means without, and seer, which means wax. Sin, seer, without wax. You see, the Romans prized, they really valued these ancient Greek statues. And oftentimes, because these statues were centuries old, they would be cracked or chipped in some way. And so often sellers, what they would do to make money is they would pour wax into the cracked or chipped areas to cover up the flaws and make the statue actually look better than it actually was. And if you got tricked into buying one of these waxed statues, you'd be bummed. But if the statue was authentic, if there were no attempts to hide the flaws, then the statue would be labeled sincere, without wax. And friends, there was something about the relationships of the first century church that were simply sincere, wax-free. No hiding no veiling, no filling in the cracks. Friends, when Luke describes the church, when he describes people relating to one another around the person of Jesus, he says, there's no longer any need for waxing. When you gather together in Christ, you can let all your cracks and chips show. Because the Bible says this, the Bible says the church is the place where you can now keep it real. Cracks allowed, chips expected. There's a group right now that's meeting on our staff uh, called MTS, Mending the Soul. And most of the male staff um, are kind of going through this, this ministry, this program together. And what it is, it's, an, it's a 12-week ministry where you walk together through all the pain and hurt and abuse and failure and sin and shame in your life. Doesn't it sound fun? And I remember when I was being told about this ministry and about this group, and at first I thought, that sounds great. That'll be really fun. And then I thought about it a little more, and I thought about sitting with all the staff guys in a room and opening up my chest and revealing all that stuff to them. And I'll tell you what, I was a little nervous. Maybe they'll think less of me. Maybe they'll lose respect. Maybe I won't be thought of as highly or trusted as much. I'm supposed to be the leader. How can I share this part of my life and still be the leader? Friends, once again, I've learned that the beauty of walking with Jesus is that often the opposite happens. And the truth is this. As guys open up, as they share and as they get real and raw and honest and authentic, respect isn't lost, it's gained. 
Trust isn't questioned, it's increased. And what emerges is a deep bond and connection and love and loyalty that's forged through the fiery furnace of authenticity. You see, authenticity is so much more powerful than we think it will be. Friends, have you ever noticed how the writers of Scripture are so intentional about often and always talking about their own struggle, their own brokenness, their own sin. They are committed to relating authentically because they know that this is when God does his best work. That if we're willing to be authentic, if we're willing to take off the veil and stop hiding and get rid of the wax, now God can do what God longs to do. Church, we must become people who relate authentically. And here's why. Because we know God uses transparency for transformation. And if we want to become like Jesus and make him known, if we want to truly be transformed, it cannot happen unless we decide to be authentic unless we drop the masks and chuck the veils and pitch the wax. There's an old, old song uh, that was written, and I don't think it was around during the time of the disciples, but I can imagine that if it was, the disciples, this very first church, the very first church would have sung this song. In fact, I, th I think it's kind of like a hymn, and it, and it talks about this very reality. It talks about the kind of relationships and community that we see in the scriptures in the very first Christians who rallied around following Jesus together and, and dropped the hiding. One of the verses of the song goes like this. Please swallow your pride if I have things that you need to borrow, for no one can fill those of your needs that you won't let show. Lean on me, come on. When you're not strong, I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. You weren't expecting that, were you? You see, that song points out something that's essential for us, and that's this. When we lean into hiding and pretending, it breeds that same attitude in others. But when we're willing to swallow our pride and confess our sin and open up our lives, now all of a sudden the community is more free to do that as well. And if you'll do that for me, now I know that at some point I will be free to do that with you, and that's what I need. And that's what I need. One of Jesus' disciples, John, he talks about this in one of his letters, and he's talking to the church, and he's exhorting them and reminding them and calling them into these kinds of relationships that God longs for them to have. And he does this because he knows that there is this constant pull in the other direction. 
This constant force of sin and brokenness and flesh in you and me that wants to prevent me from really being as authentic as God would have me be. This is how John says it in 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light, if we're authentic, if we show our cards, if we let people see into us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, if we will walk in the light, if you're courageous enough to walk in the light, to be transparent, to allow people to see into who you really are and how you really act and think and live, then you'll experience, John says, fellowship. That's his word. And fellowship leads to purity. Fellowship leads to healing. Fellowship leads to transformation. The word for fellowship is the word koinonia. And it goes far beyond hanging out in the lobby discussing how your week went. Koinonia, friends, is the deep heart and soul connection of people who have opened up the deepest parts of their lives to one another and have determined to grow in following Jesus together. Koinonia only happens when I stop hiding and let my mask down. Koinonia only happens when I long for healing so much that I determine to take the courageous chance of confessing my sin. Koinonia only happens when I finally choose real relationships over impressing you with some pseudo image I've spun up and now must work so hard to protect. Koinonia is when the church becomes the church. Some of you in this room, you've been coming to church for years, but you've never actually really experienced church because you still got a mask on. And the irony of this whole thing, friends, is this. We hide because we want to be loved. And I think that if I show you who I really am, you won't love me. And yet, when I don't show you who I really am, you can't really love me. And all I'll ever think is, you love who you think I am, but you, if you only knew. You see, by hiding, you prevent yourself from actually experiencing the very thing that you want to experience, and so you do hide. This is why James, another follower of Jesus, says, hey, you want to be the church? You want to walk together? You want to do this Jesus thing? Here's how it looks. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed, so that transformation can happen, so that God can work in your life. And of course, friends, I'm not talking about posting all of your deepest sins on the internet or even confessing your brokenness to the entire church. I'm talking about finding some safe people you love and trust and that you can relate authentically with. Some people where you can be transparent and allow them to see deep into your heart and mind and soul. Jesus had 12 disciples. At one point we're told he had 72, but then he had a core group of 12. And even beyond that, he actually had an inner ring, an inner circle of three guys. Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle with Jesus. And the Gospels are quite clear about this. Peter, James, and John, they're the ones with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the ones who Jesus takes with him to the home of a man named Jairus to perform one of his greatest miracles. They're the ones who, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, they accompany him all the way in. He tells the others to stay back and wait. 
He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply troubled. In other words, it's those three men that see the depths and vulnerability of Jesus that the other disciples never do. And so the question becomes, do you have people like this in your life? And not kinda, not sorta. There is no kinda or sorta on this one. Either there are people who have full access to your heart and soul and mind and life, or there aren't. Are there people who know your deepest sorrows and struggles? Are there people who you truly experience koinonia with? Or are you just doing small group? Just another church program that's not really church. Are you relating authentically with some other Jesus followers in this world, friends? Because there's nothing like relating authentically and becoming real with another person. The power of of reality and love and how they work together can utterly transform you. And that's why we're here. There's an old children's story called The Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you might be familiar it's the story of this little toy rabbit who's not that impressive or expensive or majestic, but he loves this little boy that he belongs to. And he hears in the nursery one day a story that it's possible for a little toy like him maybe to become real. The story says, The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs of his tail had been pulled out. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by and by break their main springs and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys. It would never turn into anything else. What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and stick out like a handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Doesn't it hurt, asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have been carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. See, friends, Jesus came to offer us real, authentic, transparent community where people could experience love, real love, 
transforming love. And this was God's plan to change the world. This is his strategy. At the end of his ministry, when Jesus left earth, he didn't leave behind financial resources. He didn't leave behind any big infrastructure. There was no budget, no building, no website. He really didn't leave behind any of the things that we think are crucial for a movement to succeed. He just left behind community. Radically real and authentic community. His disciples. And we're here today, friends, because of what the power of the Holy Spirit did through a group of people who refused to let hiding and hypocrisy prevent them from the authentic, transparent community God longed for them to be. That's who they were, and we stand on their shoulders. But today is our day. Now it's our time, and we have to make the same decision. Will we just play church, or will we choose to step into authentic community, real relationships? Will we drop the veils and pitch the masks and get rid of the wax and allow God to do what he wants to do? See, friends, and maybe that seems like a huge leap to you. Maybe that seems really scary and vulnerable. It is. And here's the good news. I don't think it gets much easier. Every single time I mess up, every single time I'm embarrassed or ashamed or regretful and I have to go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, I gotta tell you some hard, ugly, nasty truth about me. It's never fun. But I'll tell you what fuels that in me. It's this desire to be and become the person God longs for me to be. It's this desire to allow God to continue to work in my life. I'll tell you what fuels this in me, is that I know no matter what happens, no matter what I say, no matter what the other person says, no matter what I have done, no matter what I do, no matter what I will do, there's a cross with God hanging on it that says, my love is bigger than your sin. You can be authentic as a follower of Jesus because guess what? Rejection is no longer an option. God says, in spite of your sin, in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your mess-ups, I love you and I receive you. So come with full authenticity. That's this meal. That's what this meal is every Sunday. You know what it is? It's a giant confessional moment. It's a giant moment when we confess our sins to one another. When you come up to this table and you take the bread and you take the cup and you go back to your seat, you know what you're saying and declaring to God, to the universe, to the angels, to everyone in this room? I'm so messed up, I needed God to send his son to hang on a cross to save me. That's how broken I am. And then you look over and you see your neighbor with the same meal and say, you too? I guess we're in this together. I guess there's no more pretending. I guess we might as well drop the masks and the veils and pitch the wax. We don't need it anymore. Because we want to experience the real love that God has to offer. And he offers it so often through each other. So this morning as we come to the table, do you notice that the scriptures say, before you come to the table, examine yourself. Paul says this, examine yourself. Think about the brokenness and the ugliness and the depravity in your soul and then come to the table, right? 
It's almost as if God wants to show off how big the cross is. Think about the worst stuff in your life and then come and remember that what I did through my son on the cross is bigger than that. You don't have to be bashful. You just come, just, just bring your stuff. There's no hiding. You don't hide from God. This is the most authentic community in the history of the world. We should be. So today as you come to the table, I want you to do this. Just think about the junk in your life. Maybe there's some stuff you want to just confess. You want to get out in front of the Lord. Bring that stuff to the table. Take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. But instead of just kind of making this a private moment where you look down and you kind of try and focus on getting alone time with the Lord, look around. Look around at all the other broken, messed up people who are making the same declaration as you today and realize that we're all in this together. One great, big, redeemed, sinful community that God wants to use and that he's not done with yet. Look around. Make some awkward eye contact with some people. And just, yep, that's, that's right. I'm going to pray and the tables are going to be open. And then when you're ready, after you spend some time with God and you feel like he's asking you to come forward, you want to make that declaration again. My God loves me no matter what. He sent a sign to come to the table, take the bread and the cup. Father, this morning, we declare that you are the good and great and merciful and majestic Lord of heaven and earth. We are lost without you. Help us to not put on airs and to spin our lives, especially spiritually, so that people will be impressed with this, Lord. Help us to be radically real with one another and with you. That's who we long to be, Lord. We need your help. The gospel empowers us and frees us to live this way. And so we invite you in to continue to do the work in and through us that you want to do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.